This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. On Money Talks, we discuss money news and take your questions about personal finance. For 15 years, we've provided free financial information for Mississippians. I hope you can join me, Dr. Nancy Lotter danderson co-host of Money Talks, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. or anytime on our podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's an all-pet day on Creature Comfort, so we've propped the doors to our pet hospital wide open, and we welcome all pet questions from the big to the small. Do you have a cat or dog at home? Maybe both. What about questions about exotic pets like rabbits, snakes, or ferrets? Don't hesitate to join our conversation this morning. Also, if you've had a recent encounter with wildlife, we always like to hear that as well. So call and share. To join the conversation, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed Creature Comforts on Thursdays, a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. What's uh, What have you been seeing in your yard lately? Good morning. Oh, um... Lots of things in the yard, but I've also been down to LaFleur's Bluff another time. Okay. And you remember we were talking about the limpkins, mm-hmm. the little birds that have a limp. So they're called limpkins. <laughs> Evidently, that was a long time ago somebody gave them that name, their nickname. In fact, I've, I read a little bit about them, and they also um, make some incredible sounds. And um, But I guess first I better, I'll go back to the beginning I won't bury the lead. I I got to see them really good looks at the limpkins, and uh, they were eating mussels like we have heard reported. And the kind of the news about the limpkins is twofold. One, they're expanding their range for kind of unknown reasons. There seem to be more in Mississippi and Louisiana. The last two, three years, they're they're spreading out. Generally, they're super rarely found all over the southeast. If you look, it's like a very light shading on the on the location maps and the bird books. But they're primarily in South Florida and Cuba and a little bit of the Yucatan, you know, down in that mm-hmm. area. So not generally a bird that would be up here, particularly this time of year. Right. And um, it's thought that they ate snails, and all the literature says snails, snails. It, sometimes it does say other mollusks, too. So we've been observing them eating, um, or people have been observing them eating uh, soft, kind of the soft-shelled, you don't really call them soft-shelled, thin-shelled freshwater mussels that we do have in abundance, although some of the species are rare and some are endangered. So um, we want to watch out for that. But so I did get to see the the Lempkins last Saturday. You know, there's always a a first Saturday of each month that we call them first Saturday walks. And um, uh, there's always a a group of people walking in Lafleur's Bluff State Park on the nature trails. We walk all the way down to behind the museum and back. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've been reporting those um, all summer while I was gone and couldn't see them. So finally, I got to see them. And, uh, you know, Paul studied mussels for 40 years, I guess, 30 years. So uh, we took him down there, and he got down by the water so we could watch the 
Limpkins through our binoculars while he's kind of hiding down below us. And when one picks up a shell and picks it open and then drops the shell, and it's real cool. We got to watch him eat that looks like a, you know, a, a weird raw oyster. And then Paul could run down and catch that exact shell with while we're like our walkie-talkies on the cell phone saying, oh, a little to your left, you know. So he identified two species that we were all familiar with, pond shells and giant floaters. And those are both shells, luckily, that are in abundance and they have, you know, there's no threat to their existence. But what Paul also suspects, we know that low water light like this is stressing for the mussels. For one thing, it, for for all all the animals that live in that kind of shallow water swamp, when you have real low water, and sometimes there's warm days interspersed with cold days, you tend to have low oxygen content, and that's basically suffocating them. Mm-hmm. And fish can die, of course, and freshwater mussels can too, or they can just be stressed and damaged, but survive and you know, recover. But when they are stressed, it's harder for them, not surprisingly. You know, it's muscles that hold those two shells together, and it's hard to pry them open when it's a healthy, viable shell. As they die from anything, they start opening. And Paul's kind of suspecting that these muscles are stressed and are probably easier for the for the birds to open. But, um, you know, who knows? Time will tell. We'll start watching and seeing what happens. So far, I haven't seen anybody report anything other than these thin-shelled mussels that are pretty common. Uh, The endangered shells generally live in fast water where the limpkins are not going to be. So just as a generalization so far, we don't think they're probably not doing nearly as much damage to the population of mussels as the low water is is the the drought and i would imagine that the birds are able to recognize maybe the ones that are partially open and go for the ones that that might be a little weaker Mm -hmm. so it's an easier meal i guess yeah they seem to be walking around being a little bit selective and they're automatically selective in that they don't go in deep water they've got long legs and they don't like you know it said in the literature it's very rare to ever see them get their back wet at all they just get those legs wet so they're walking along the edge and the muscles that are up on the edge are probably the ones that are the most stressed anyway so there's no sign of them getting out in the middle and probably no way although the literature does say they can swim maybe if they got desperate for food they would get out into the deeper water but it was it was something that was really fun to watch. And um, then I had to go in and watch the fish feeding. Santa Claus is feeding fish <laughs> in the museum aquariums. So fish feeding is already pretty much fun. And now it's it's gone into the adorable area there when uh, the Santa Clauses are scuba, in their scuba gear. And uh, Santa feeds, let's see, on Tuesdays and Fridays at 10 o'clock for the next duration for a while now and then on Sunday afternoons I can't remember if it's at two or three but it's right in the afternoon you can call or ask when you get there but uh, they don't open until one on Sunday anyway so it's right in that afternoon but it's it's lots of fun to watch all right oh and then there was one other thing I was going to say about the Lipkins just because I think you'll like it Kevin they they do a little kind of a 
clucking sound to each other as they're searching, whether it's, oh, there's some good ones over here Mm -hmm. or, you know, I'm not getting too far away from you, am I, that kind of thing. But they they just kind of cluck to each other as they're walking around. And there were three in this group that we were watching. But they also, I've not heard this except on tape, and I guess we could play it if we wanted to later, but they do a, a kind of eerie scream, <laughs> lots of Halloween sounds, some really. And in some places, remember I said they're down along the Yucatan border, down there they call it the Lamentations bird, like it's wails of lamentation, you know. It's a, a very dramatic sound, but it's a pretty dramatic sound, and I can see how you would think somebody was in distress because it, it sounds a little bit, it's oddly Human, but not exactly human, if that makes sense, which makes it kind of scarier. Yeah. Well, I would rather be named after that than the fact that I have a limp. So that's uh, that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. We, so we can call it the Lamentations Bird <laughs> if we want to. Dr. Major, we've got a call coming to you now. This one comes from Christy in Memphis. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. What do you have for Dr. Major? Hi. How are you? Thank you. Um, I have a dog, a red healer mix, about 10 years old, and she has cataracts in both eyes. I'm concerned because um, I wondered whether or not cataract surgery for dogs uh, was as successful as it is with humans, and if there's anything that I need to watch out for um, or be concerned about before getting the surgery. Also, I wondered if I could get one eye done instead of both, as it's so horribly expensive. Thank you. You know, this this is great questions, and I appreciate your call. First of all, uh, I would ask you, have you had your veterinarian check your dog as far as the eye situation is concerned? Yes, Uh, yes, and she does not do surgery, so she would right, refer right. me. Yep. Certainly, and you've got some, uh, at least a couple of specialty clinics in uh, Memphis, and uh, certainly they would be able to give you the exact idea of what they can do. In most cases, they want to do both eyes. I hesitate telling you that, but in most cases, they do. They use very similar uh, techniques that are used in humans, and uh, I'd say the success rate, depending on who you talk to, is pretty good. And uh, we've had several dogs here that have had the surgery and um, has improved their vision and seems to work well. But there are other complications that can happen, certainly glaucoma. I'm talking about before surgery, glaucoma, retinal degeneration. So you need to have your dog checked by a specialist, and then uh, let them advise you on the best course of action. I hope All that right. helps. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Major, let's uh, talk a little bit about this, um, and I guess they haven't even come up with a name with it, so we'll just continue to call it the mysterious dog <laughs> virus, I guess it is. Um, do you, uh, Is there any more information that, that you've heard about, about maybe trying to figure out what it is or anything? Right. Trying to keep current with this. Incidentally, some of the strangest sounds that you can hear in the, in the woods if you're out walking, this sort of thing, especially. Uh, uh, I was thinking about the Lemkin's cry. Certainly, it sounds like a lamentation, I believe. 
But one of the scariest sounds that I heard, not realizing that there was one around, is a peacock. Um, they can screech, and it sounds just like either a, a, a I would say, a, a wildcat or, or a female in distress. Uh, but they can make some strange sounds. And if you're out in the woods by yourself and you hear that the first time, it kind of makes you wonder. Ooh, I bet so. That was scary enough. Remember when we used to hear them at the zoo? Sometimes they would scream at the zoo, those peacocks. They, yeah, they, it was weird. They have a shriek, that's right. Yeah. Now, let's get back to the disease. Excellent question, and I'm sure it's on a lot of people's minds. They still are having some problems with it. Actually, they feel like it's a bacteria, some sort of strange bacteria that is smaller in size than a lot of the current things that they were looking for as far as what was the cause. Symptoms are similar to kennel cough, which is a combination of a virus and bordetella, and there may be a virus involved with this uh, particular uh, disease as well, but there's still, uh, what should I say, school is still out as far as the exact name of it and the cause, uh, but they do think it's more of a bacterial type thing than uh, viral. So people ask, you know, what do you do to prevent it? There is no vaccine for that. I would suggest that you should uh, have your dog vaccinated for the other uh, respiratory things like kennel cough and probably influenza, especially if you're out around other dogs. There is an influenza vaccine. And the recommendation right now is try to avoid intimate contact. Uh, Dogs, if you're walking your dog or in a dog park, what do the dogs do? They're going to lick each other. They'll sniff each other. This is just their way of greeting. But it's good to keep them separate at this point, not knowing exactly what, what, how it's transmitted. The other thing, if you do have a dog in doggy daycare or boarding, just uh, tell them about your concern and be sure that they're sanitizing, like water dishes, water bowls, uh, that sort of thing. And um, Abram, our producer, I found an article from AARP, um, and they said that it looks like this is probably going to spread to all states. I think when we talked about it last week, it was interesting to me how we had West Coast, East Coast, you know, in between. So this is liable to eventually affect Mississippi. But as far as you know, Dr. Major, no no cases uh, documented in Mississippi as yet? I'm pretty sure there probably have been some that are not documented. Uh, we're talking about Florida, Georgia. Uh, I understand there have been some in Louisiana. So I would say because of the travel that people do with their pets, intermixing, mm-hmm. that we will have it, and it probably will be in all all the states. Uh, more prevalent at this point on the East Coast, West Coast, and uh, scattered reports across the country. And uh, even though at this point the, um, it's not known what causes it, are there still some things that a vet might do to make the dog feel better and, and help out in, in other ways, even though we don't know the exact cause of this yet? Right, and identifying whether that is the actual cause or whether it's more traditional of a respiratory or kennel cough uh, certainly could be a problem. Probably you would go ahead and have the dog treated in similar fashion the dogs that are at most risk, just like in people with uh, what's the RSV type thing, I'm not comparing this with RSV, but the dogs that are compromised, either um, immunocompromised from cancer or some other type thing, or dogs that are just not healthy, 
certainly it could be worse on them than on a healthy dog. So we're off to Oxford. Mary has called in today. Mary, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Uh, good morning. Yes, I'm concerned about my cat. She has had over a series of time uh, of her nose, and then about two weeks ago started getting bloody on one side. And, of course, she licks it off, and I don't notice it very often, but <clears throat> I took her to the vet here in Oxford, and uh, she prescribed a 10-day series of a liquid, um, what's it called, a mox clave. And yes. um, I gave that to her twice a day, but sometimes she would spit it out. So I'm not sure she got the full dosage. <laughs> but again, it's um, it's now on both sides and crusty when she doesn't look it off. Okay, now she, you said you saw some blood, and that was coming from her nostril? Yes, and, yes. Okay. and then uh, once she threw up a whole meal, and then other times she'd spit up a little bit here, there, and yonder in the house. And yes. um, she's how, 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 how old is she? Uh, she's about 10 years old, I guess. Uh, she's my son's cat. Has she had any contact with other cats recently? Well, uh, I have two. There's two cats here at the house. The other's a very, very old cat, about 13 years old, who was in a car accident. She has her problems, but uh, she seems like she's okay. Right. Uh, you know, it sounds, sounds like she's got a pretty severe sinusitis, which uh-huh. is crustiness, and she... I don't know if she sneezes or not, uh, oh, but it sounds like she's yeah. real congested, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's very difficult to clear up. Uh, your vet may want to try a different uh, antibiotic. I know that the one that she gave you or he gave you uh, is, is good. That's basically the equivalent of augmenting in people to give you an idea of how it's a broad-spectrum drug. On the other hand, these things are difficult to clear up. Sometimes a nebulizer uh, can have medication uh, put in the nebulizer or mist, and that helps some of these cats clear up. But it is very, I'm just saying this from experience, it is very difficult to clear these chronic cases up, and it's become chronic. She's she's having some bleeding. Uh, Does she go outside at all? No, she's an indoor cat. Okay, good. I took her out like twice on fish, and um, I had to take her. Yeah. Well, as you finish this medication up, I'll definitely get her back into your bed and um, discuss this with her and see what other alternatives are available. But um, it appears that this has become a chronic situation, and maybe finding the right antibody uh, for that will be good and talk to her about possibly nebulizing. Huh. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for your, your question. And, and good, well, good luck, and okay. I sure, sure hope she improves. Thank you. Back to the phone lines we go to Florence this time. Mark has called in today. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. I've got a question uh, about my cat. Uh, he's about, well, it's a girl, it's a female cat. I've had her about 14 years. Uh, and all of a sudden, she started losing a lot of weight, and we took her to the vet. They did a lot of tests 
on her and uh, couldn't find anything and told her she probably wouldn't survive without another month and a half. And that was a year and a half ago. <laughs> okay. So we, we, we've taken her to another vet. They couldn't find anything wrong with her either and suggested we might take her to uh, Mississippi State. But her, uh, her insurance has kind of reached its limit. <laughs> as far right. as I know, I was wondering if there's anything else we could do. Yes, my question to you would be number one, did they check her thyroid? Uh, in other words, uh, no, I don't think so. They gave some blood tests. Might, and might suggest but, that. And if it's been a while since she's been checked, most cats, as they get older, start to have some kidney insufficiency. And that's one reason you see a lot of older cats that waste away kind of down to skin and bones. Uh, but I would certainly uh, consider a good quality food. Uh, KD uh, made by uh, Science Diet or Prescription Diet Hills certainly would be a good food for most any cat at that age. Uh, I would repeat some blood work if it hadn't been done and ask specifically about the thyroid situation. Uh, that can, coupled with kidney problems, can cause some drastic weight loss. How much weight has she lost percentage-wise? Uh, I think she was up to like 13 pounds, and she's about 4.7 now. Okay. That's, that's drastic, and uh, if you haven't had blood work done in the last three or four months, go ahead and have it done again just to be sure, okay? Okay, and check uh, But I would, I, I would ask, uh, and thyroid specifically, and kidneys, yes. Good okay. luck to you. That's, that's significant weight loss, and it's it, that doesn't sound real good, but there's always hope yeah, that she's but, still eating, and uh, yeah. I would continue on. All right, uh, Mark, we appreciate you. we appreciate your call. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. It's an all-pet day, so we're looking for your pet questions. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We do have some calls to get to. Next, we're going to Starkville. Steve has a question today. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm calling in uh, about uh, my dog. His name's Chip. He's a Jack Russell Terrier, about nine years old. He was uh, extremely healthy, you know, really good weight, very muscular. And uh, I noticed over a course about two, three weeks, he stopped being active. And then he had rapid weight loss. He went from like 32, 33 pounds down to around 27. Um, loss of a lot of muscular um density and um so took him to the vets uh they did uh, radiographs on him couldn't find anything really physically wrong with him uh, but he continued to deteriorate and i took him to the starfold uh, msu veterinary and um from there uh they checked him for cancer uh negative on that and they didn't really have an idea of what was wrong with him. Uh, ended up taking him to another clinic over in West Point where they did sonograms on him. Couldn't find anything wrong there. Uh, 
that they took uh, fluids from his joints and sent that into the lab, and they suspected it to be a tick-borne illness. So we were on a course of a lot of uh, pain relievers, uh, antibiotics, uh, steroids. Uh, after the treatment for that, we took him back because he was still, um, you know, down, wasn't recovering. Uh, I thought he was, you know, a couple of days from death when I actually took him in the last time. And they rechecked his blood work, and the only thing they can find is his white blood cell count is really high. So from there, they put him on a, an immunosuppressor. It's called uh, Atopica. 50 milligrams, and a steroid. And basically that's keeping him going, but he's not really improving much. So just follow and see if you have thoughts on that. Right. Yes, that's pretty complicated. I would say this. Uh, can you, do you remember any of the blood blood pictures, uh, blood work pictures, like what was the uh, platelet count? Do you remember that? Uh uh, I'm sure. The white blood cell count is that that's the number. The white blood cell count is different than the platelets. The platelets are uh, measured differently. The, what, do you remember how high the white blood cell count was? The, the highest, the which means the lost seventy-seven. Um, the last blood, the last last blood test he had was a week ago, and it was down to sixty-six. And that's 66,000 white count? Yes, I, I think the normal range is, what, 7 to 14? That's close, but it was that high then, which uh, I'm still concerned about cancer based on that, even though they check in for cancer. and You know, you don't always find cancer, even if it's there. But uh, that's terribly high. What antibiotic is he on now? Uh, Is he on doxycycline? He was on the doxycycline, but uh, when the blood test came back uh, negative for any illness uh, after being on the body, they took him off. And he's just now on, he's on the immunosuppressive and the steroid. Okay. But he is holding his own with that. But that white count is still tremendously high if it's in the 60,000. So, you know, I'm kind of at a loss how to advise you. Uh, I would say that I still, the first thing in my mind is still cancer uh, for it to be that high, which would be unusual for it to be that high with, say, a bacterial or type infection or even a tick-borne infection. Gosh, I wish I could help you more. It sounds like you've gone through just about every every avenue, uh, and uh, I wish I could tell you who to go see or um, something else. I would still consider rechecking uh, that blood work again if you hadn't checked it in the last uh, two weeks. Uh, see what see what is done now that he's on the steroids and the immunosuppressant, and see what see what that shows. I uh, hope that they're on the right right track. It, and I was asking about platelets because with an autoimmune disease, 
Do you remember what his hematocrit was? I guess I'm just trying to ask for information. His hematocrit would be your red blood cells. There, you know, there were so many numbers they put in front of me, yes. I can't call them all. But, I, no, but, I do, do understand. I'm just concerned about either cancer or an autoimmune disease, and they're treating it now as it is, like it is an autoimmune disease. So let's see how he responds to that. Be interesting to know what new blood work shows if he's been on the other medication for seven to ten days. If you get results on that, certainly uh, uh, they can give you my phone number. I don't mind talking to you more. Uh, but at the same time, I just wish you the best of luck. Sounds like everybody's stumped on the on the issue right now. So good luck, and uh, I'll be glad to talk to you at any time. Okay. All right. Thank uh, you very much. Steve, thanks for your call. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines. Next, we'll go off to Mobile and uh, invite Jim into the conversation. Good morning, Jim. It's your turn. Go ahead. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Um, so, okay, uh, I'll try to give you a brief history just so you know what's going on. Um, I don't typically live in Mobile, and uh, I was here over the summer for a couple months. And, um, now I'm back and I'm going to be here for, and I've been here, I've been here since October and I'm going to be here through January. I'm staying with my parents and they have two dogs and one of the dogs is super cool, just wants to hang out. The other dog will not warm up to me. And when I was here over the summer, she was the same way, but eventually she did warm up to me. And so then I left Mobile and then I came back. And it's like she forgot who I was, and I've tried everything with this dog to, to, to get her to, you know, just, like, not freak out every time she sees me, and nothing works. So, I mean, do I just need to be persistent and have patience, or I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Okay. What kind of dog is she? It's, uh, like, a, I don't know, it's not a toy poodle it's like a miniature poodle i don't know okay small small dog and the other dog the, the, the they're, other i think they're, they're they're brother and sister okay so they're about the same, oh, the same. yeah yeah uh that is strange you know you think over given uh a week or two that she would warm up to you i i'm not sure exactly why she's doing what she's doing this is the female that's Doing that, Correct. right? Yeah. Um, gosh, will she let you take her for a walk on a leash? Um, well, where where my parents live, they, it's not really necessary to take them for a walk. They just open the back door and let them let them yeah. in the backyard. But uh, I was just thinking, yeah, no, I, don't, I don't think person. I've ever been on a leash, honestly. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, and I understand. I. I had a dog that you put a leash on him and he just laid over flat. <laughs> like, hey, you, if you're going to go anywhere, you're going to have to drag me. <laughs> uh, I, uh, it is an unusual situation. And the other dog likes you, loves you. And yeah. If, the other, if you're paying attention to the other dog, does this dog show aggression or uh, uh, growl or anything like that? No. Okay. It's a point you may need to talk to a trainer 
I wish I could give you better advice. Uh, I would reward both of them with uh, treats. They don't reward bad behavior. But uh, the fact that she warmed up to you in the past, she should uh, come around, I would think. It's a little strange situation. But dog personality is hard to understand sometimes. But there's some reason that she's uh, doing this. Maybe she's jealous of the other dog. I don't know. But uh, there are some animal animal behaviorists. Uh, I'm sure at Mississippi State and at Auburn, you can actually talk to them on the phone, and they may give you some good ideas. Okay, cool. Good luck to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, guys. I love MPB. You guys are great. All right. Thank you, Jim. We appreciate that and appreciate your call this morning. Uh, let's get one more phone call in before our last break of the hour. Back to Florence we go. Scarlett has called in this time. Good morning, Scarlett. You're on the air with us. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. What's your question Good. today? I have a question. I'm calling today about my dog, Allie. She's a um, pug and chihuahua mix. She is about probably between 11 and 12 years old, and um, she's an inside dog. And she go, we take her out for walks. You know, I let her out to use the restroom and stuff like that. But when she, my issue is, or my concern is when she drinks, like she'll drink water. And after she drinks it, she'll start hacking or like coughing, you know, like she's choked or like she, she's trying to hack something up. And then sometimes, um, other days she vomited. And I've never seen her vomit, you know, that I've been aware of. I mean, she may have, you know, and got rid of the evidence before I was able to see. But the other day she did, and it was just like um, an orangey, yellowy, like, bile. And it didn't have an odor or anything. It looked just like acid, you know, stomach acid or something. So then I got to wondering and looking up, and it said, you know, possible acid reflux or some kind of a digestive issue, maybe from the dog food, you know. Because she does tend to eat very fast, but I have her a slow feeder, and she still eats really fast or tries to, you know. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Now, how long has she been doing this hacking and gagging? She hasn't been doing this. Uh, she hasn't been doing that very long, like um, with the water thing. It's probably maybe right. three to four weeks, maybe maybe longer, but it's not been noticed since May until then. Right. Does she do any coughing? Um, sometimes she does, but not. But not not consistently. Then. No, okay. no sir, no sir. Okay, what you saw when she she saw the yellow was uh, would think it would be uh, stomach contents or bile. She, her stomach was probably empty at the time, but uh, a lot of times they will gag and then spit up. I don't believe it's acid reflux if she's just doing this once or twice and you say she may have done it and removed the evidence. I don't know. But I would have her check if you have it. She may have a pharyngitis, which is kind of like you or I with a sore throat. Uh, certainly water could irritate that and cause her to uh, gag or spit up. Uh, otherwise, she seems to be normal. She's active and plays and all that. She is. is that well, now she um, she does um, like breathe real heavily, which I know that might be some of the pug in her. But she doesn't breathe right. heavily like just standing there. She's not snorting and 
mouth open okay. and all that. But when she's breathing, you know, asleep, she's kind of like raspy. It sounds like she's got a frog in her throat, you know, as they say. Kind of a snore, almost. <laughs> yes, but it's kind of like, have, would, like she's would, barely breathing. Yeah. I would have your vet check her just to be sure the throat is not irritated and doesn't need to be, she doesn't need, may need to be on some antibiotic or something else. But uh, certainly it's cause for concern that she's doing this every time she drinks or nearly every time, okay? Um, yes, sir. And her lower abdomen is blo- not bloated, but it's real tight, you know, which I think it may just be from fat. But, you know, I just I might just take her to the vet to have her checked out about that. I think it probably would be wise. Uh, certainly there are other conditions as well, but uh, I would like to see you go to the vet and, and have them. Check her over, okay? Okay, all right. That sounds great. Take care. Thank you for your call. All right, thank you, too. Y'all have a Merry Christmas. Thank you, Scarlett. So we will head back to the phone lines. Off to Franklin County we go. Uh, Dr. Branton, uh, a vet, is on the line with the perspective on a previous call. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Okay, the dog named Chip with the high white cell count and the dropping platelet count uh, thrombocytopenia is a medical term for that. I've had a number of customers go up in North Mississippi for football games and stay at campsites with their mobile uh, camping trailer. And there are dogs who would come back with a batazone canis, which is a tick-transmitted disease. It's very difficult to diagnose, and especially if the pet has been on Steroids, cortisones, uh, pred, dexamethasone, what have you. And uh, PCR would be wonderful, but if you get a negative test, you sometimes don't stop there. You go for the muscle biopsy, and as long as as it is a striated muscle, then, yes, muscle biopsy. But... um, the the treatment that I have found to be most effective is detox. It's a powder. It tastes like milk. You mix it in their food, and within a week or two weeks, a substantial improvement. There are several options on treatment, but I have found that that has the least side effects and the most success. Now, the problem with this particular disease, if it is that disease, is that it requires 18 to 24 months of treatment. That's twice a day, decox, calculated according to the pet's weight, mixed in its food. Uh, You will get a relapse if you you skip a number of treatments, not just one or two, but if you do skip a number of treatments during that 18 to 24-month period, you will get a relapse. But I thought I might suggest that perhaps he might consider maybe putting the pet on decox trial or perhaps running another Buffy coat or PCR for hepatazone. That's E, excuse me, I'm going to spell it for you, H-E-P-A-T-O-Z-O-O-N and then canis, C-A-N-I-S. That's the name of the disease. The only way you can get that disease is eating a tick, not a tick biting your dog, like all the other tick-transmitted diseases. 
That's all I got to say. All right, uh, Dr. Branton, thanks for your call. Dr. Major, any thoughts on, on that call? That's a great, great description of the disease. Uh, we see some, and certainly they do have to stay on that medication for a long period of time. Um, it's, of course, he had been to Mississippi State. I'm not sure what tests they ran, and he wasn't sure exactly what that platelet count would be, but I suppose it would have been low. Um, and I certainly appreciate your call and give us that information. Uh, that's certainly a part of the rule out and certainly would be one of the things that it could be. So thanks again for your call. And also we were in the studio during the break talking about the, the caller that had the pug uh, chihuahua mix. Would the dog perhaps want to drink water knowing that they feel sick? And like a lot of times if we're sick, at least you have something on your stomach to throw up and not throwing up that uh, stomach acid. So could it be possible the dog is going to drink knowing that, you know, that maybe that'll help them when they throw up. That's possible. A lot of times dogs will eat grass or other roughage uh, to stimulate them to throw up uh, as well. And this dog does need to have a good checkup. The pug, Chihuahua mix, a good checkup from their vet. Uh, I'd be concerned about several things, anything from uh, the pharyngitis, which I mentioned, to Cushing's disease. Uh, she mentioned the swollen abdomen. Uh, there, there's quite a few things that her vet needs to check. So All right. that will be interesting to see what they find. Let's have one final call this hour. It goes to Cindy, who's calling us from Edwards. Good morning, Cindy. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Yes, sir. I treat my dogs for, uh, I, I don't have a flea problem, but I live in the country and there's a huge tick problem. And I keep the resto collars on my dogs. <clears throat> my question is, the ticks are hooked on to the dogs. They're dead, but they're hooked on. So can they still get tick-borne diseases even though they are being have the Soresto collars on? I would have to see. I'm not familiar with what the kill time is with the Soresto collars. You would rather them not be, be hooked on. There are some uh, types of uh, tick uh, applications that can actually cause a tick not to attach. Uh, and certainly I think you could use more than one tick control play. Uh, talk to your vet uh, and see what they might offer, but I'd rather them not attach and stay on. There's time. There's a timetable for each of these diseases that the tick would have to stay on a certain period of time for it to transmit the disease. And certainly we don't know if they're attached and on how long it took for that tick to die. So you might want to couple what you're doing with another tick preventive, okay? Okay. Yes, there's some that actually they, they will not attach. So talk to your vet about that, okay? All right, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Cindy, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Just enough time to remind you that uh, if you're ever out and about uh, in nature, maybe on a nature uh, hiking at a state park or something, and you've come across something that you can't quite identify in terms of the creature world, if you take a picture of it with your smartphone and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we have some folks that might help you figure out what exactly it was you saw. 
That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. Our show is produced and engineered by Abram Nanny. So for Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Mm -hmm.